welcome to Sellersburg United Methodist Church podcast, where we bring our mission to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world to you, wherever you are. All right, we are almost halfway through Lent. Yay! We are making our way through, and I've heard stories from some of you who are fasting in some way. And one person shared their fasting story. They said they wanted it to hurt. They thought it should. It did for Christ. It should for me, was their approach. They wanted their daily routine to be one that actually kind of hurt. Not physically. They really like to enjoy something every day multiple times, and they said, I'm not going to do it. And they have one in the fridge uh, sitting over at the church office. You can probably guess who it is. And he's not touching it because he wants it to hurt. He wants to be reminded. It's what Lent means to him. And I've heard other stories, some of you who are giving things up and experiencing the pain of the routine. And I hope it's been a blessing for you, and I hope it continues to be. Today, we're going to spend time at the beginning of the chapter that we read the end of last week, chapter 13 of Luke. And if you remember, Jesus is communicating with stories and images that there's destruction coming to the people of Israel. It's coming. That's the context. And it's on the horizon, and the people should see it. In fact, right before our passage today, he says, you can tell when a storm's coming, right? Can you not see the signs of what's coming? More and more people are picking a fight with Rome, and he sees where that's going to lead. We can look to the southwest, right, and see the storm, and it's so wonderfully weird here in the valley how the storm comes and then just splits right around us and we kind of get something entirely different than those of the north and the south. But we still see it coming. Jesus says, this is how it works. You finish the sentence for me. You live by the sword. You, it's how it works. You see the storm clouds coming. Guess what? Jesus describes judgment in this way. This is how things work. This is the intended purpose of things. And if you live in conflict with the intended purpose, there will be problems. If you stay outside holding your metal umbrella in a storm, you're inviting trouble. It's judgment. You do something not smart, something not good, could and and may and will happen. If you live a life of dishonesty in your relationships, eventually the relationship will fall apart. If you take risks in your life, the wrong kinds of risks, holding umbrellas and storms, eventually something bad is going to happen. If you drive 100 miles an hour on the highway, eventually you and maybe others are going to come to know destruction and pain. God doesn't cause broken relationships. God doesn't cause the lightning to strike. God does not cause the accidents to happen. We live in a world where there are consequences. There's an intended flow, and we can either live by it or not. For better or worse, there are consequences. This was the work of the prophets of the Hebrew Scriptures. Oftentimes, their work is misunderstood. We think they're looking forward. They're not looking forward telling the future like they've been given some glimpse that no one knows about, they see the present 
They sit in the car of the person driving 100 miles an hour. They stand next to the person holding the umbrella, and they say, you know what's going to happen? If you keep doing what you're doing, they see. They didn't speak of God's judgment as if God's going to make the bad things happen, but rather this is how it works, and you are headed down a path of destruction. They warned people, you keep going this way, there's only one outcome. Like we focused on last week, Jesus is calling the people of Israel to stop picking a fight with Rome. Do you know where that heads? You're going to lose. Instead, he's calling them to change their hearts and their lives, to repent as a people, turn away from the path of destruction, and instead, toward a life of peace and forgiveness, peace and love for enemy. It's a bold calling, not one that anyone wants to hear. Because we like judgment as we define it. We like making the consequences. Or I'll speak for myself. I know how things should go. Rome's not going to change how they treat people. Even if people start loving them and forgiving them, that doesn't mean they're going to change. But Rome is headed down this path. And Jesus is essentially saying, don't follow them. They're going to meet their end. And they did. Because that's how it works. It's inevitable. Let's not follow. All the while, people notice in this scene that we're going to read, there are people from Galilee with Jesus, and they are headed toward Jerusalem. That's where they're headed. So as a group of Galileans headed toward Jerusalem, we come to this passage and some Galileans say, do you know, Jesus, what happened to some Galileans recently that went to Jerusalem? We're going to listen to their questions, listen to the things they're raising up, the root of the question, what they're really asking. Because as they hear Jesus talk about this new direction, this new kingdom, this new way of living, Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem with these Galileans. It looks like he's leading a group of revolutionaries, which he is just not the type of revolutionaries you might expect. So let's hear from Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. Some who were present on that occasion told Jesus about the Galileans whom Pilate had killed while they were offering sacrifices. He replied, Do you think the suffering of these Galileans proved they were more sinful than all the other Galileans? No, I tell you, but unless you change your hearts and lives, you will die just as they did. What about those 18 people who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them? Do you think they were more guilty of wrongdoing than everyone else who lives in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you change your hearts and lives, you will die just as they did. Jesus told this parable. A man owned a fig tree planted in his vineyard. He came looking for fruit on it and found none. He said to his gardener, Look, I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree for the last three years, and I've never found any. Cut it down. Why should it continue depleting the soil's nutrients? The gardener responded, Lord, give it one more year, and I will dig around it and give it fertilizer. Maybe it will produce fruit next year. If not, then you can cut it down. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Do you hear the, the anxiety in the group? 
as this group of Galileans heads to Jerusalem, there's kind of this question. You know, there's pilots there, Jesus. The temple, like the Galileans that just got killed in the temple by Pilate. We're going there, right? Pilate. We kind of get a skewed version sometimes in our scripture, and there, there are arguments and reasons for that. If we look outside of scripture at the history of Pilate, Pontius Pilate, we see a man who was very violent, very angry, and had been kind of cursed to go to Israel by Caesar. He'd done something to make Caesar mad multiple times, and he got put at the outposts no one wants to be put at because there's always struggle and violence and stubbornness in a group of people who say, you're nothing. Our God is, is the only God, and we're not going to do what you say. And Pilate's given the task of keeping peace in this place. It's a tough and tall order. So he did all sorts of violent and evil things to maintain peace. It's as if the people are saying, Jesus, do you know what you're getting into here? Now, we, we know from historians like Josephus of Pilate's atrocities, we know that some people were killed in the temple because they thought they were revolutionaries. And so Pilate sent soldiers in to be on the lookout, and they did what they did. They killed him. So the blood of sacrifice mixed with the blood of people. That was the intent, to profane the temple, because Pilate, that's what Pilate did. The people are asking, what, what does it mean that this happened? We're headed here. What, why did that happen, and why is the fate not going to be any different for us? And Jesus says, you think God punished them? You think that they had sin and you don't, and so this won't happen to us? That's not why that happened. Judgment is not about God doling out punishment based on sin. Rather, sinfulness is itself living a life against the flow, leading to consequences. It's an imperfect world. That's how it works. They were no more guilty than you are. And he even adds to the story by mentioning a tower falling. This was no evil intent by any person. A tower fell in a place near the center of Jerusalem. We have no other reference to the story other than the scripture. But 18 people died because something being constructed fell on them. There was no malice here. It happened. Because in an imperfect world, when you work with heavy stone, sometimes it falls. And it killed them. They had no more sin than anyone else. We are going there. We could face the same things. In fact, if we head not just to Jerusalem, but if people keep heading in the direction against Rome, that's what's going to happen. That's how it works. When you gather as a large crowd and your people are known to be violent revolutionaries, whether you were violent or not, those in power are going to be paranoid and they're going to make rash decisions. It's not about sinfulness. It's about the nature of things and people. Whether we talk about Galilean revolutionaries, whether we talk about tower builders, there's just a reality of how it works. And then he turns it in this political direction when he compares these tragedies with the tragedy to come for Jerusalem by talking about a, a fig tree, often used to describe Jerusalem as a fig tree. He, he says, let's cut it down, the vineyard owner. Seize a fig tree, and if you don't know how I have a vague idea. Don't hold me to this. You would plant figs along one side of a vineyard because they would block wind, and then something about the way that they germinate, whatever they do, it's good for the grapes. But the vineyard owner sees, 
owner sees there's one that's not producing fruit. It's not doing its part. So he does what any good gardener would do. Well, let's cut it down and we'll plant another one. That's what you do. And the gardener says to the vineyard owner, I get it, but let me give it one really, let me give it one more try. Let me really fertilize it, prune it. Let me really give it every chance as if he said, let's give it all we've got. And I can't help but think of that in a Scottish accent. You Trekkies will know what I'm talking about. The fig tree is not doing what it's intended to do. It's taking up space, it's taking up nutrients, and it's not doing its job. So you cut it down. It's what you do. The gardener shows this grace. If it bears fruit, it will remain. And if it doesn't, then we'll cut it down. It's not a grudge. It's just how you run a vineyard. It's how it works. It's responsible to cut things down that don't fruit. It's a weird passage, huh? Death, destruction, a fruitless pig, pig, fig tree, judgment, and a call to repentance, all in this passage. It's worth reading multiple times. I encourage you to go back to the beginning of chapter 12 and read all the way through 13. See this passage in its own context. Meditate on it. You should, if you haven't done it already. But this morning, I want to offer this strange passage in a way that hopefully will be fruitful for us. We're going to consider it personally and communally because we are a group of individuals as members of a family. So ask two questions. What is bearing fruit in your life and what is not? Pretty simple. To start with, you'll have to prayerfully and carefully discern in your own heart what it means to bear fruit. It may be bearing fruit according to some paths, but not necessarily God's path. I use Galatians 5, through 23, the fruit of the Spirit, that is one of my go-tos. If you know it, say it with me. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It's the fruit of the Spirit. I spend time examining my life and I wonder, are the things in my life producing this kind of fruit? Is how I invest my time fruitful for God? Is how I invest my money fruitful for the kingdom? Is how I invest my energy fruitful for my relationships? Is how I invest in my commitments fruitful for anybody? I have hobbies, I have disciplines, and I have leisures. Are they producing fruit? Leisure is a good thing. We need to rest and we need to experience joy in the things that fill us. But is it doing that? That's the question we need to ask. Or are they just taking up space in my life, taking my time and my energy and money, but not really producing anything? Just taking up space. Is the energy that I'm taking from the soil, from my community, from my relationships to do some of the things I do, is what I'm doing blessing the whole garden or just me? And that brings us to a communal aspect. We can also consider Galatians 5, through 23, and we can think about that as members of a community, as members of a neighborhood, 
as members of friend circles or working somewhere where you have coworkers or employers or employees or look at our leaders. We can look to each other as fellow Hoosiers, as fellow Americans, as fellow earthlings. Are we living a fruitful life of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? As a church, are we living out our calling to be the very body of Christ for our community? Are we offering ourselves as a source of belonging and fellowship for people who have not? Are we offering ourselves as guidance and accountability for each other, bringing healing into the world, into people's lives, restoration, reconciliation, as United Methodists consider what's being fruitful. Our mission, say it with me, is to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. As the local church body, are the things we do here producing fruit? Maybe some are, maybe some aren't. Maybe we need to take some that aren't and say we're going to give it a good go and we're going to really pour into it the right way and we'll see. And if it does, great. Glory to God. If it doesn't, maybe it's time to cut it down. Are we doing the things we do for the community, for the transformation of the world, or just for ourselves? That's something every church needs to wrestle with. Do we represent the kind of revolutionary that Jesus called, or do we look like other revolutionaries? If an area of your personal or communal life is not bearing fruit, we have decisions to make, and we must make them. It's the responsible thing to do. How can we truly commit ourselves to giving it every opportunity to bear fruit? That's, a, that's something we need to decide. If it doesn't, are we willing to cut it down? There are things in our lives and in this community that bear much fruit. Amen? Praise God for that. There are things that bore fruit at one time, but maybe they don't anymore. And we can celebrate what they did, but acknowledge what it's a different season. There are things on the horizon God is calling us to do. But we have to make space. What are we willing to cut down? What are we willing to not cut down? For the good of the garden, the whole garden, beyond these walls, are we willing to cut down anything that's not producing fruit? The good news is, as hard as this discussion is, this is what it is to be a good gardener. Connie knows right now, this is a hard time to be a gardener, as many of you others know. This is a hard time. You're sweating and you're working. You're getting dirty. You're getting cut up. Pretty soon you're going to be getting eaten up by bugs, right? It's hard work. But if you do it, we bear fruit. We flourish. Not just for us, but for everybody. The good news is that Jesus Christ, our Savior, sustains us with life if we commit ourselves solely and soulfully to a life of the kingdom, peace, forgiveness, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I think I missed one in there. Sorry about that. We will flourish. There is a harvest to come, but we must tend to the garden. Tilling, pruning, fertilizing, ugh. Sometimes cutting things down completely. 
Where are we headed in our lives as people and as the church? That's what this passage offers for us as Jesus offered it at that time. If we aren't living as we're intended, if we're headed down the wrong path, even though it looks good and at one time it was good, we gotta turn. We gotta change our heart and lives. We gotta reorient and redirect. There is grace, friends. Thank God for the gardener. Oftentimes in parables, it's God who's the owner and it's Jesus who's the gardener with grace. Let me see what I can do here. There's life to be had and there's fruit to bear. So let us continue our journey in Lent toward the cross and let us be honest with ourselves. Let us completely consider the trees of our garden personally and communally. Let's stop pretending that we understand judgment. Let's stop pretending that it's all about punishment and whether you're doing the right things or not. Sometimes it isn't. We live in an imperfect world. Instead of fearing what might happen, let us dream of what might happen. Let us live as we were intended. Fruitful, flourishing for us, for our community, and for the world. Amen. Amen. We thank you for worshiping with us. And it is our hope that through the Holy Spirit, you have felt the touch of God upon your life. If you would like to know more about our church and its ministries, please visit our website at sellersburgumc.com.